This is Transistor.fm. Hey, Ron. How's it going? Pretty good, Andrew. Hey, Dave. How are you doing? Pretty good, Ron. Thanks for asking. Andrew, how are you? I am hanging in there. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Honey Badger. When you need your code to be reliable, Honey Badger helps with uptime monitoring and contextualized error messages to save you time and money. Get started on Honey Badger today and get a 30% discount by mentioning the Ruby Blend when you sign up at honeybadger.io. Welcome to another episode of the Ruby Blend. This is episode 21. So you can find all the show notes at therubyblend.com, all one word, slash 21. And I'll probably try to repeat that at the end of the episode, but you can also find the show notes in your podcast player, hopefully. And if you can't, then let me know because that's, uh, that's an issue. So today, Dave had a pretty good idea for a topic. So we're going to dive on into that. And that's kind of talking about our development setups, our environments, some of the equipment we may be using, and kind of uh, see kind of where we go with that. So does anyone want to start? So I'll start on a tangent. All right. Next week is my birthday and my wife never knows what to get me for my birthday. It's one of those things where I can always come up with some kind of thoughtful gift for her, but she knows that the only thing I would truly like enjoy would be something techie. And her not being techie herself, she has no idea what to get me. So it's always one of those things where I pick it out for her and then she buys it and then I act surprised. You know, because that's what loved ones do for each other, right? So this year, I picked out for my wife to get for me for my birthday, a Elgato Stream Deck. And those are typically a device that streamers use or gamers use to do different kinds of things on a live stream. However, it is essentially a little box that sits on your desktop and it has a whole bunch of keys on it that act as programmable macros. So you could essentially do the same thing with a spare keyboard or numpad, but this has fancy little LCDs on there. And so lately what I've been doing is before I get it, because it's not my birthday yet, it would just be wrong for me to start playing with it right away. You know, delay gratification. What's that? So I've been playing around with the iOS version and creating my own plugins. So I just finished a plugin last night for a uptime monitoring. So I already created Pingverse, which is a online uptime monitoring solution. But I also wanted to kind of have something that sits right in front of me and it would have a little green icon if my websites are up and running or if it's red, then I could see like, oh no, what's going on with Drift and Ruby? Why is it down? So it's one of those things where I think that it's going to be really helpful in that sense. But then I also found that others have already created a lot of plugins for GitLab's CI/CD pipeline, GitHub Actions, and a lot of other things. So I think that this is going to turn into a really cool development tool as well that could help me streamline working and switching between different projects really quickly without having to lose my focus. I can even program it out to run my CI/CD pipeline if I wanted to, and then just get a little status indicator of the results. So there's a lot of potential in here. But originally, I picked it because I want to do use it for video editing, which is another common newer use case for this device. And so I've seen people on YouTube and stuff go through their reviews on how they're using it for video editing. And it can cut down a significant amount of portion of time and what they are doing to 
edit their videos and doing all the Drifter Ruby videos. That usually takes me about eight hours to do the full edit from start to finish and publishing. So I'm hoping to shave a few hours off my time in doing that each week. So it hasn't quite improved my workflow yet because I'm actually spending more time creating plugins and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully in the long run, it'll pay off. I'm curious because I wanted one of those, but I wanted one of those purely for the fact of like, it looks cool. So I'm, uh, I'm very curious <laughs> to hear how it works out for you. Yeah, I'll be sure to let you know. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing you said. It hasn't paid off quite yet because you're still like playing with it kind of in the beginning. And that's like most tools that we use, whether software or hardware or whatever, like it takes a while for us to actually see the benefit or at least the time-saving benefits of the tools we use. I felt that way when I first started using, for instance, like Vim as a text editor. I really couldn't do anything with it. I mean, it was cool though, but it took a little while for me to actually be able to you know, work faster with it than without it. Yeah, I've tried Vim several times and the amount of time it took me to get mildly productive just wasn't... Uh... It wasn't working out for me. So I uh, haven't made the switch yet, but cool. So Dave's getting an Elgato streaming um, deck. That's awesome. And happy birthday. Because I guess by the time this airs, your birthday will already be passed. So happy belated birthday, I guess, at this point. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it, it should be interesting. And I think you bring up a good point, Ron, because we have so many tools at our disposal. Editor-wise, we have Sublime Text, Atom, VS Code, RubyMine, Vim, Emacs, if you're into that kind of thing and stuff. So each one of those kind of range on a learning curve from like easy and just get going with it to extremely hard on how do I quit this freaking terminal. So I think that we run into this fine line of diminishing returns. So if we spend so much time learning how to do something, one, is it going to make us a better developer overall in the long run? Are we going to be able to easily share that knowledge to other developers to help them streamline their workflow? And is it really just worth doing? So in my case with Vim, I just never saw the benefit and return in speeding up my workflow in a way which I could not do within VS Code. Right. Yeah. No, I understand that. It's, you know, it's personal taste, right? The first time I tried to use Vim, I typed Vim into my terminal. And then like, I couldn't figure out how to type anything because of course I didn't read any kind of documentation. And then I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to type anything. And then I couldn't figure out how to exit. I like had to find the process ID and kill it from another terminal. And I was like, you know what? I'm good with that. And I put Vim down for another year, didn't touch it again. I'm like, nope, this Vim thing isn't for me. And then at some point later, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it another try. And it, I mean, it has a learning curve, you know, it was fairly steep for me. But once I actually got used to using it, now I wish everything had Vim key bindings, right? Like I wish... Microsoft Word had Vim key bindings and I install like uh, a plugin in my browser so that I can, you know, control it with Vim key bindings and 
maybe three, four weeks ago around there, I switched to using Emacs. And the first thing that I did was set up the Vim key bindings in Emacs so I could actually use it. So, but yeah, at what point do you say, you know what, this isn't serving me. I'm better off with this other thing or something that I already have. Me, I'm just like adventurous. So (laughs) I'm curious, why did you switch to Emacs? Well, a buddy of mine was telling me some of the things that he does at work, a coworker of mine. And so when I saw it, I was like, oh man, that's really cool. You know, and he is, oh yeah, you know, I, you know, wrote this uh, function in my Emacs config. And I was like, oh, okay. So uh, a few days of, you know, me talking to him, he convinced me to, to try it. And so that's what I did. I said, you know, I first I just kind of was playing around with it, seeing if I could get it to feel something like what I was used to with Vim. And before I knew it, a month had passed and I haven't like touched Vim since. Yeah, I definitely don't use Vim on a daily basis. I mainly use VS Code as my editor, but I would say if you are a developer, you need to learn how to use Vim one way or another, because there's going to be a time where you have to log on to a production box to investigate something for whatever reason. And the only editor that was provided on that Linux shell is VI or Vim. So I think knowing how to get into Vim, how to search a file, make a change, and save and close Vim also are really important things that every developer should need to know how to do or at least have some kind of cheat sheet available so they can quickly refer to it. Yeah, I guess I kind of agree with that. I guess not totally, because for me, if, I mean, I know enough of them to do that, but I would just pull up a cheat sheet, honestly. I don't think it's something everyone needs to know, because, I mean, not every developer is going to be SSHing into boxes, you know. Uh, there are a lot of companies that have that really locked down. On Heroku, I don't think you can use Vim unless you install like a special build pack. So I don't know if every developer needs to know it, but I think it's something that will make you a better developer if you do take the time to investigate and learn it and maybe not commit to memory, but just have an idea of like, okay, well, this is how I... At minimum, you need to know how to open like insert and then save. I think if you literally just know that, I think you're kind of fine. And there's tons of cheat sheets out there and I'm not sure you need to memorize it, but at minimum knowing where those resources are is is pretty much what I have so far. Right. Every developer should probably know what you just said. You know, everybody doesn't need to know them, but at least understand that, hey, at some point you may need to use it. And if you do, you can easily find, you know, some kind of resource to help you through. And I will say the long running joke of it's impossible to quit Vim. I do remember specifically in college getting stuck in Vim and just being like, how do I quit Vim? And (laughs) it happened several times after that. But I think it's funny that even though that's kind of like a recurring meme in programming, it's totally true. I think if you ever accidentally open Vim, you're immediately, the next question is, okay, how do I get out of here? Oh, yeah. Like I said, that happened to me. I didn't touch Vim for a year or so after that just because like it left such a bad taste in my mouth. Like I opened it on purpose and I was like, oh, how do I get out of here? Nope. 
I would like to see someone write a plugin to disable the colon Q to quit them, but instead you have to type the economy code in order to quit them. You know, the up, up, down, left, right, left, right, BA. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That, be, that is awesome. a dated reference, I will say. My buddy did that. He created a dark mode when I worked at my first company for our design system, and you could do the Konami code to enable dark mode. And I was like, what's the Konami code? And then when he said it, I was like, okay, that's like a cheat. I remember like way back when, but that is definitely a very dated reference at this point because I can't remember the last game I played that wasn't when I was like a kid that had that. Yeah. I do some woodworking and one of the projects that I did, I think it was earlier this year, was build a arcade cabinet for my kids. And so I put Contra on there and some other old school NES games and they love playing it. And so I taught my eldest daughter, who's seven, the economy code to get 30 lives in Contra. So I I think it's still very relevant today. It's evergreen. (laughs) Well, I guess you both said what you were using. I'm using VS Code as well. I've mentioned that many times. We probably don't need to go in that too much, but I've tried Vim. But I think I went against what Nate recommended when I tried Vim. And I tried something called Space Vim, I believe, where it was already kind of retrofitted with a bunch of plugins. And Nate was like, if you want to learn Vim, start like with nothing and then add like plugins as you go, which I didn't do. And maybe that was the reason that it didn't really catch on for me. But I've done that. I've used almost every editor I can think of at this point. And recently I re-downloaded RubyMine and tried to get started with that because I was, like I've said before, I'm working in a legacy code base. And I was like, maybe RubyMine will have some tools that will, you know, help me out a little bit here. And honestly, it took me so long to like get it up and running. And then I couldn't figure out how to like change files quickly. And I guess I tried it for an hour maybe and I just quit. And I was like, I just went back to VS Code. I was like, this is just taking too long. Yeah, definitely. About, you know, going back to what Nate told you about just using something vanilla. I agree with that. I've seen quite a few people use something like that, some kind of package where it just kind of sets your editor up for you with a bunch of defaults and, you know, all of that stuff, which is good if, you know, if that's what you want to use and you're just going to stay there. The problem that I've seen is, you know, especially with something like Vim, people at some point want to, you know, extend it on their own, you know, and those packages tend to be a little difficult to figure out what's doing what. And, you know, if you want to say, okay, I don't want it to do this, but I want it to do that, you know, it becomes a little difficult to unwind everything and figure out like what's going on. Whereas if you start, you know, from like a blank installation and just, you know, config as you go, as you need things, you know where, you know, what's doing what. And it's, it just becomes easier to, you know, keep going, to keep extending it. Have you ever written Vim script? Yeah. And you know what? I don't dislike it. People... Really? People dislike it. And I think maybe just because, you know, I had used Vim for so long that I just got used to it being that way. I will say writing custom functions in Emacs. I do like that better, even though I'm not a huge fan of like parentheses everywhere in, you know, with Lisp. 
it does read a little bit or, or at least writing, you know, writing these functions seems more like a real programming language than Vimscript does. But yeah, I didn't really mind Vimscript. I've never heard anyone say anything good about Vimscript. So that's why I was <laughs> kind of curious. I've never heard anyone say anything good about Vimscript either. Not even what I just said that, oh, I don't, I really don't mind it. Most people that I've heard just hate it. But I'm like, eh, I don't see what the big deal is. So here's the real question. What font are you guys using? Ooh, I used to be using Fira code on Vim because I like the little ligatures. I could not get that to work in Emacs thus far. And so I'm using whatever the default font is, I think, in Emacs. And on VS Code, I'm just using the JetBrains Mono right now. I am also using JetBrains Mono. And I guess Ron already answered this, but Dave, do you use the ligatures? No, I do not. I do. I know people who are usually very one way or the other on ligatures because I have a buddy and he's like, I refuse to use ligatures. He's like, this and that, and I hate them. And I'm like, dude, but I don't understand. I like them, but I think it's to each their own at some point because it can also sometimes introduce issues, I guess, if you're not used to it. Yeah, I mean, just like with anything else, if you don't know what you're looking for, you know, if you just kind of get dropped into an environment, if you're pairing with somebody and they've got ligatures on, you get caught off guard. Same thing with like, I used to use relative line numbers. So like the line numbers on the side aren't the actual line number. They're just how many lines away from the current line that I'm on. And that messes with everyone that I pair with. So I turned that off. But it was nice for me because I knew how many lines to go up or down to get to wherever I was going. So I could just hit that number up and it would just go to that line. So that's why I liked it. That would definitely screw with me a little bit. But I guess it wouldn't be as bad if you're in smaller files. But, you know, some of the files I'm working in right now are multiple hundreds, if not thousands of lines long. And that would definitely with me a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just don't pay attention to the actual line number that I'm on or like any line numbers, really. I usually don't navigate using line numbers. The most that I will use a line number for is like if I have to communicate with somebody that, hey, what I'm talking about is on line, you know, 120. Or if I want to run just like a, a specific context in the spec file, then I'll figure out what line it's on. But other than that, I don't know. Maybe I'm weird, but I don't really pay attention to line numbers that much. I think I'm right there with you, Ron. One of the things that I like in a... It's not recent anymore. It was within the last year that VS Code introduced was their browser. So at the top of a file, you can get the actual path to the file that you're on. But then on the very last item within that path, you can click on it and then see all of the functions that you have created within that file. And it's really cool for quickly navigating through different parts of a really large file. Yeah, I believe the stuff on the top is called breadcrumbs and the other stuff is called symbols. And I've recently started using the symbols a lot more because if you're using VS Code on a Mac, then you can type command T and then the name of a method, and which is also, I think, what they consider a symbol. And it will like jump you to wherever that method is across your code base. 
So I've started using that a lot more, which is very helpful. But yeah, I like the breadcrumbs. I don't use the symbols or the, there's like a symbol view pane. I don't use that as much because I've realized that I have one extension that tries to show it and then I have another that does the same and it just never really materialized to something useful for me. Yeah, I use a similar thing in both my Vim and Emacs setup where, you know, I can do a, you know, a key binding and then just start typing basically the name of a method that's in the file. And it'll show, you know, if I just do the key binding, it'll show a bunch of them. And then as I start typing, it'll fuzzy match on them until, you know, narrowing it down. And that's how I usually navigate a file because I typically know, you know, which method or, you know, what area that I'm, I'm trying to go to. Or at the very least, I'll just do like a search slash and then start typing something and then it'll jump me to wherever it's at. Nice. So that's editors. What browser are y'all using? I use Firefox. You're a hero. <laughs> well, I don't know. I like... Last year sometime, well, actually before that, I tried Firefox and I tried to use it and everything was just super slow. And so I was like, nope, can't do it. Had to go back to Chrome. But then again, sometime last year, I was like, well, let me revisit Firefox because, you know, people make progress, right? And I was able to do everything that I wanted to do as far as work and like personal browsing. The only issue that I've ran into And I actually ran into it this past weekend was I was working on a a WordPress site with a page builder called Elementor, which has some like scroll effects stuff that it does. And some of them were not acting right on Firefox. And when I tried it in Chrome, they actually worked fine. But other than that, I haven't had any problems with Firefox. Are you on the regular Firefox or are you on the Firefox developer edition? I'm on the developer edition. And I thought about that, like, well, maybe if I go, but I didn't really feel like downloading the regular edition. So I just didn't use the scrolling effect that wasn't working. Fair enough. How about you, Dave? I use Google Chrome and I use it just because of habit for the most part. But then also it does have the best compatibility as far as if you were to look at, can I use you'll see that they have the highest browser score as far as what the browser can do. But most of those features, I'm not even using. So I really have no real reason why I'm using Chrome except for habit. Yeah, I'm not going to go on my Google rant. I have a Google rant about shame on you. And I'm just kidding. I used to use Chrome and I just started cutting out Google from my life. And that was one of the things that left. And also in my mind, yes, Google has the highest can I use like compatibility? But if you're developing at like the highest compatibility, then you're missing, I think you're going to miss a lot of things that aren't compatible. So I know people like to crap on Safari and I don't know why, because I think it's awesome. And particularly because I have an iPhone and I have two MacBook Pros. So handoff between the devices using Safari is just so much simpler. Like if I'm on my phone and... I walk into my office, I can paste to my computer, I can immediately pull up my whatever browser window I'm on on my computer. So that's part of the reason I use Safari. And also I just I like the security. Too. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> so. don't you have to be using Chrome on your phone? No, I no. use Safari on my phone. And then I can 
I get a little icon that says, hey, you want to pull up this website that you're on your phone with on your desktop? And it just launches Chrome. So it, Firefox it works is both ways. Yeah. Yeah, Firefox the is the same. The reason why I cannot use Safari is because they do not support fave icons. Hey, do you want to start your own podcast? Head over to Transistor and use my coupon, transistor.fm slash Justin. You'll get 15% off your first year of podcast hosting. It's in the bookmark bar. So my bookmark bar, I don't really have text in there. I just have the fave icons bookmarked. So I know what all the icons are. You know, I'm familiar with them. So that's how I navigate to my different bookmarks. But in Safari, they don't support that. Or at least not as of version 13 or whatever. I thought that got changed. Maybe not. I guess not. Eh, Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't really look at my bookmarks like that. But yeah, that... uh... That would make sense. I also use, there's like an entire like bookmark pane and that has all the fav, fav icons or whatever on it. So I use that as well. But yeah, I use Safari mostly for security. I don't like Google at all. I don't like Google peering into my stuff and I try to limit my use of Google as much as possible. And I guess that kind of ties into, I guess, are you guys all using Google as your search engine? Yeah, I can't get away from Google as far as search is concerned. Like sometimes I use because I feel, you know, I got the whole security bug too. And so I started trying to use the Brave browser and use like DuckDuckGo search. And it happens fairly often where I will be looking for something and using DuckDuckGo, I will not find what I need. But when I go back to searching, with Google, then I find the answer that I need. Yeah, my search history is so out of whack that I doubt it provides any use to Google. Because, you know, one minute I'm looking up some coding stuff, the next minute I'm looking up people like popping zits or whatever. Awesome. <laughs> That's <joking>. oddly specific. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Why do I feel like, like you were doing that right before the call? <laughs> yeah, I feel like uncomfortable now for some reason. <laughs> It's a joke, but it's weird. Whenever I'm on YouTube, I'll be looking up something and then somehow I'll always get over to those kind of things. It kind of never fails, right? Like you end up going down this like rabbit hole. Like I was looking up programming stuff and yeah, it kind of de-evolves into something weird over time. Yeah. My mom loves sit popping videos. So it sounds like y'all would get along. But I was using DuckDuckGo for a good bit. And I specifically really like, they have something called Bang Search, where you type uh, the exclamation point or bang, whatever you want to call it, into your search bar. And then the name of a website like Google or GitHub or this or that, I particularly use it for Google and GitHub. But you can type bang GitHub and then your search term and it will search GitHub like specifically using GitHub search. I really like that specifically just for navigating GitHub. But I once I started working in Rails 4, I found that the search results were definitely not pulling up what I needed, unfortunately. And the way to use Google on if you have DuckDuckGo is to use the same bang method where you type bang Google and then your search method. And at some point, I realized that I was pretty much having to do that for everything when I was working in Rails 4. So I went back to Google. Now that I have a work laptop and a personal laptop. I, my personal laptop uses DuckDuckGo and my work laptop uses Google. Yeah, you need a little bit finer tuning 
if you're searching through a bunch of really old Rails content, I, I feel. So that's kind of what I'm doing. But yeah, DuckDuckGo has been... I really want to love it and I don't, but I also really care about my security. So let's face it. Your code is going to have errors, even code written by an amazing 10x developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single easy to use platform, saving you time and your cash. The Ruby Blend listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention the Ruby Blend when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. Thanks to our friends at Honey Badger for sponsoring the show. With Google search, I know you can do under the tools option when you're doing the search to find articles between a certain date range. You may want to date it back to anything like pre-2015 or something. Right. Yeah, I think learning like the search commands for Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing, God forbid, like whatever you're using, I think can help you a lot. And GitHub. GitHub has very similar to Google, like ways you can tailor your like doing like an advanced search. So I think spending some time and getting a little bit familiar with that is going to benefit you, especially when you're trying to find kind of nuanced or like older material. So wait a minute, are you saying you don't like Bing? I don't like Bing and I don't feel like I need to defend that. I mean, do I? (laughs) (laughs) I use Bing every day, or at least I try to, because there's like a program that you can search up to a certain number of searches and get points for it. And then you can cash in those points for Amazon gift cards and different things like that. So I get on Bing every morning, do my maximum number of searches and a couple of other things that they'll let you do to earn points. And then I don't touch it again until the next day. I totally used to do that. I don't anymore though. Oh yeah. I I just saw that the other day. And then I started doing the calculation of like, okay, so each search and the time that I'm investing doing this, is it really worth it? And you're getting like pennies to do it. So I was like, ah, it's just not worth my time. Well, I mean, there's really no time. I mean, there's obviously time involved, but like, so the Bing homepage has like a bunch of like searches. They're they're actually searches across the bottom. Or like if you click on one, it kind of moves it to the top. And I go through and I click each one of those. And by the time I get to the end, I'm at my limit for the day. So, you know two, three minutes to do that. And just last week, I cashed in 70 bucks worth of Amazon stuff or uh, Amazon gift cards, I should say. It's not too bad. It's not bad at all. Okay, so let's let's kind of get to the meat. So Dave, I'll let you go first because I know you got a pretty cool setup. So what's your office setup like? What kind of computer are you using? If you know the mouse and keyboard, go for that. Monitors, anything else that you want to share? Like if you're using like a CalDigit or something like that, lay it on us. All right. So my setup is way overkill for the 99% of people out there. It's pretty much overkill for myself too. So before any listeners start texting me like, why do you need that? Why do you need that? I'm just saying, I know I don't. So I have a Mac Pro. It's the baseline Mac Pro. So I did upgrade the storage to one terabyte and I upgraded the RAM to 192 gigabytes. And I recently got the W5700 XT or whatever it is, the 16 gig graphics card. 
which is pretty awesome. I will say that. So it's a pretty beastly machine. I have it under desk mounted. So I have a StarTech heavy duty desk mount. So I have that screwed into the bottom of the desk and it just kind of floats there. So I don't need $800 wheels. And then that's attached to a standing desk. And the standing desk is made by Inland, which is a product that's often found in Micro Center. So it's a motorized standing desk with a pretty big landscape. So it's a pretty large desk. And then it came with a entire desk-covered mouse pad. So on the desk, the entire thing where I can reach is a super duper large mouse pad. It's pretty awesome. Then I have some SIG R mounts, which mount up two LG 5K displays, the Thunderbolt 3 kind. And I have a bit of buyer's remorse on those because I don't even run it at the 5K resolution. I actually have them both at 4K because my eyes are getting old and I just can't quite see the 5K very well. And then... That's the main like computery part of it, but I do have a ergonomic Logitech keyboard and then a Logitech MX Masters 2 mouse. So I love my Bluetooth keyboard and mouse. It feels a lot better than the Apple junk. And then as far as my audio stuff, I don't know if we really want to get into that or not. Well, just tell us what kind of mic you have. Okay, the microphone that I'm using right now is a Electrovoice RE20. That's actually plugged into a PreSonus studio channel. So it's a rack mount channel that I have next to my desk. And that goes into a Scarlett Focusrite solo. And that goes USB into my computer. And I'll never forget one time you and I paired on something like very early on into us knowing each other. And you have a bunch of rack-mounted servers as well, right? Those aren't in my office, though. Those are in the basement. So Uh, I think I have eight rack-mount servers that host various things. A couple of them are Kubernetes builders. So they will actually run the CICD pipelines for all my personal projects for every single commit. And those are set up with a full CICD. So it'll do auto deployments. It'll do staging environments where it'll spin up a whole new namespace and pods within Kubernetes. So I can test out new big features before I actually deploy them. And then I have a couple of hypervisors, bare metal hypervisors, which will house various things like a Plex server, and a bunch of other little websites and stuff that I have. So I don't run anything production on those. Those are all non-quote customer-facing devices. Do you have any idea how much it costs you to run those in terms of power? I'm just, I'm curious. Yeah, I did put a kilowatt unit on there, which is basically a device that you plug your power strip into, and then you plug that device into the wall, and it'll actually give you the wattage readouts. So I'm about 800 watts per hour, which in the US or within my locality, we pay about $0.09 cents per hour. It's about $50 a month just in oh, power not, for that server rack. Yeah, it's pretty reasonable considering if I were to have that in a data center, I would be paying $50 per U. And I have about 16 U's worth of servers. 
So, I mean, that's already a ridiculous amount plus power plus whatever else they charge. Yeah. I remember when you were showing me your setup, I guess it was about a little under two years ago. And I was like, oh my God, this guy is on like a different level. Like, how do I get to this level where (laughs) he's got the servers and like the whole Kubernetes thing just blew my mind. So I'm glad we got to tell everyone about how cool you are. It's gotten a lot worse since you first saw it. So I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I've actually gotten a proper KVM switch on it now. So instead of having to unplug the monitor cable and the USB keyboard cable, I actually have a front panel control switch, which I can quickly switch each one of them in a pull-out drawer, which flips up to a laptop screen and keyboard. Damn, you fancy. (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) I know, right? It's like he's living my dream. What about you, Ron? Yeah, so my setup is actually nothing to talk about. I have on my personal slash what I do client work with is like a, um, it's like an old MacBook. It's like 2014 with a Thunderbolt monitor. My desk does not raise, nor does it lower. I need to get a new one, but I've just been, I don't know, kicking that can down the road. The only thing probably of note that I use is my keyboard, which I love. I have an ErgoDox EZ keyboard and I am completely in love with it. I want to buy a new one. Or actually, they, I, the company that makes the EZ just came out with another one called like the Moonwalker or something like that that I've been eyeballing. I saw that. I yeah. saw that. That looked cool. Yeah. Yeah. My mouse is just the Apple touchpad mouse magic touch two or something. I don't know. I don't remember what it's called, but it's just the regular standalone touchpad mouse. How do you like the touchpad versus having like an actual mouse? I've been thinking about it. I like the touchpad. And I think, I don't know if that's just because that's what I'm used to, but yeah, whenever I have to use a mouse, I don't really care for it. I like the touchpad, but a lot of people I know are not about it. Oh, and I have a cheap, what is this, like a Samsung Q2 mic for recording. And yeah, that's about it. So my setup recently got a bit of an upgrade. So a lot of this stuff is kind of recent. I have a standing desk and I think the makers are called Viv or something like that. It was definitely not top of the line or anything. So, but it works. I think it works great. I also had an Ikea tabletop that I was already using. So I just put that on top and I'm enjoying that so far. I have a, for my personal stuff, I have a Mac Pro 2019 with a 15 inch screen. I don't know, I guess 16 gigabytes of memory probably. And I have three monitors that I use ish. I bought like the wrong type of monitor arms. So this is probably going to change in the future. But right now, I have two LG 34-inch screens and one of them is vertical, one of them is horizontal. And one of them is an older model and the other is a USB-C, which I just recently got. And then I also have a third monitor that's also vertical. That's just like a cheap Samsung that I've had for years. All my monitors are curved for no reason, really. (laughs) But they are. I have a Blue Yeti microphone, so nothing really to speak of there. It's pretty cheap. I've been looking to get a new one, but just haven't pulled the trigger yet. And 
And I have a work laptop that's just like a 13-inch Mac Pro. And my mouse and keyboard are both from Razer. And I have the Razer Black Widow Tournament Edition keyboard. And I don't remember the name of the mouse, but it's the the Basilisk mouse. And I think that's pretty much it for what I've got. But like I said, recently got an upgrade that I'm kind of enjoying. I will say, though, about your monitor setup, Andrew, you did do it right. You went with the TIE Fighter setup, which is really cool. Yeah. It, if you follow me on Twitter at Andrew M. Coates, you can see a picture of it somewhere. But I basically have one 34-inch that's horizontal in front of me. And then the two other monitors are vertical side by side. And my plan was to have the two 34s both horizontal and on the same monitor arm, but I got the wrong size. So I need to get a new one to kind of complete that. And I was going to put the smaller monitor kind of on top because what I've really found useful and I like about having a vertical monitor is I like putting my terminal on there. And I also like putting Slack at the very, very top of it. So it's kind of in my peripheral if I need it, but the main is for my terminal. I've, I've really liked that setup of having a vertical monitor. And I've probably had a vertical monitor at this point for a little over a year. And I find it, it really helps me in terms of productivity. Now, just seeing, having it all right there. And I use Tmux. So I am just tabbing around my terminal with Tmux. And I really like having the vertical monitor, but I'm hoping to get these two 34-inch monitors side-by-side horizontal. And then I'll keep the other monitor vertical. Yeah, I would do a stack. So you have 134 inch below and 134 inch above tilted down. Oh, at you yeah. So you're more in a cockpit. That's a, oh, yeah, yeah I, I thought about that's actually, okay. Now that someone else has said that to me, it sounds like way better than when I was saying it to me. Yeah. I, <laughs> you can't stop there though, because if you've no, got two stacked in front of you and one vertical on one side, you got to get another vertical for the other side and round it out. Oh, well, I guess you're right. I can't say no to that. You have to. Well, that, I, I started to like get a little crazy with it. And I was like, okay, but what am I actually going to put on these monitors? Because for Doesn't some matter. reason... Yeah, you're right. Never mind. Conversation over. You know, you're totally right. The day, before I got a Mac computer, I had a custom-built PC running Windows 7 at the time. And I literally had five monitors hooked up to it. And this was back in the day before 4K monitors were a thing. So I had three 1080p monitors plus a smaller resolution monitor. So, I mean, it it was really crazy. And then for the main screen, I had a 27-inch Samsung monitor. So it's really sad that one of my 5Ks is more real estate than all of those combined. That is pretty nuts. Yeah, it's fun to watch how monitors kind of increase in terms of spec and power, but also like, oh my God, the price is just absolutely astronomical. I could literally buy another computer for this. Yeah. But uh, I, that's pretty much what I've got going on. I guess the only other cool thing I have is a VR headset, an Oculus, but unfortunately that's going to have to go because Facebook just put more restrictions on Oculus and now you have to have a Facebook account in order to use it. And I'm not about that life. So if anyone wants to buy an Oculus, let me know. <laughs> You have to have a Facebook account to use your Oculus. They just created that. And I am so pissed that, yeah, you now have to have a Facebook account. That's not right. It's not. It's really not. 
And that's why I'm like, screw it. I, <laughs> like, I don't play this enough. I'm not willing to get a Facebook account, really. Not again. I mean, I have a Facebook account and I wouldn't get it because it requires a Facebook account. <laughs> Just on principle. Exactly. Is there anything else that we, you want to talk about your setup? Or maybe we can go around as like a final note and each of you can say one or two tools about like applications you use that you can't live without. Dave, you want to start? Yeah. So I guess for a final thought, I would just say, keep your environment super simple. And that's one thing I love about your setup, Ron, is that it is replaceable. You can easily replace any component of your setup, one, without breaking the bank. And then two, it's very readily available. So that's a really nice thing about a simplistic setup. And also, as far as like your software goes, almost every program I use, I try to keep at the default settings or in a way where I can then import in a backup of those settings. I don't like spending all my time customizing my workflow simply because if my computer crashes and if I ever have to replace it in a hurry, I want to get back up and running as soon as possible. If I ever go to work on someone else's machine under a new profile, all I have to do is basically install my apps, download my profile or my dot file, and I'm back up and running. So I would say those are like my biggest like takeaway thoughts is to try to keep it as simple as possible. If you are able to get by and not be impeded by the defaults, then that's going to be the best route to go in my opinion. But as far as software that I can't go without, I would say ScreenFlow would be one of the biggest ones for video and screencasting. I love ScreenFlow and its program. And then the Adobe Suite, I use Illustrator and Photoshop quite a bit. So I've been playing around with Illustrator lately. And as far as development goes, I would probably say VS Code and iTerm. Ron, you want to go next? Yeah. As far as a final thought, I would say just, you know, do what works for you. You know, the three of us have different setups and, you know, different text editors and whatnot. I would say don't, you know, get tripped up by all of that. Just find what works for you and, you know, what makes you comfortable and what's going to make you the most productive. Because at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. As far as software, a good SQL client, because I don't think of a SQL client whenever these kind of things come up and like, oh, what's, you know, what's one piece of uh, software you couldn't live without. But whenever I'm in a place on a machine that does not have a good SQL client and I need it, that's when I feel the pain. So I think they're underrated and a good SQL client you need to have one. I use Navicat Essentials and it is good enough for me in the past. I've tried other ones and just was not able to do what I wanted to do comfortably. So, but yeah, that's, uh, that would be my recommendation. Get a good SQL client. Yeah. So I guess as a final thought, I mean, as the youngest one here, I was obsessed. Like when I saw Dave set up the first time, I was like, oh my God, I have to have everything he has. And then, you know, you see all these great developer setups on Reddit and Instagram and Pinterest or wherever you're at. And it's 
as a younger and newer developer, it's, it's very enticing. Like it looks cool. It, honestly, it's kind of what it comes down to. It's, oh my God, that looks so cool. Seeing like everybody's setup is like, oh my God, that, that's just so cool. And I, and my setup isn't cool. And I think I obsessed a little bit about that too much. Like I was like, I want more monitors and I want this and that. And I want to, you know, I spent maybe too much money, but also just too much time like thinking and customizing and tweaking things early on, which I think everyone as a newer developer is kind of going to fall into. And I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's like what Ron and Dave are both saying is that as you kind of get more comfortable with your setup and as you find what works for you and what doesn't, having a simplistic workflow and a simplistic computer setup and I think it will go a long way and benefit you, especially what Dave is saying. If you need to get back up and running quickly, if you're, God forbid, if your house gets broken into or, you know, something happens and you lose your computer or you need to set up a new computer for another reason. Like I just set up a new work computer. I had to set up my original Mac many times because every time I would try to update it, it would crash. So I got very good at setting up new Macs. And now I was able to get my work laptop up and running very quickly just because I kind of hammered out the issues in that setup workflow. But I think going simple is going to benefit you a lot more. You don't need that many monitors unless you find one day that you do. And I don't. I think that the default should be until you need it, don't add it. And I think that kind of goes for applications. That goes for changing your settings. That goes for extensions on your editor or what have you. Because I often find, and I go through my extensions on VS Code quite often now because I often find I install things and I don't use them. And I think I'll use them and they just kind of sit there. So I think going simple out of the box is definitely the way to go. And for apps that I can't really live without, I guess VS Code is one of those. But I don't use iTerm, which is something that probably differs from the both of y'all. I use something called Archipelago, which is a buddy of mine created a terminal when I, at my first job, and I guess trying to fit in there, I was like, okay, I, I will use your terminal. And I've actually, I've been using it ever since. It's kind of clean and I like it a lot. And there's not a ton of settings on it. So kind of going back to what we were just saying about being minimal in your setup. So I like that. It's called Archipelago. And the other things I really can't live without are Spectacle, which is a app that has uh, keyboard shortcuts for moving windows around. And the other is called Flux. And it's an app that changes the color of your monitors, like the temperature of your monitors, um, according to the daylight settings. So as it becomes evening, my monitors will start becoming very warm in their temperature in terms of the, the actual look of it, not the actual like heat. But then that helps with my eyes and stuff like that. So yeah, I once again want to echo what Dave was saying that and, and Ron, just keeping it minimal out of the box will save you time later down the road. So I think that's what I took out of this conversation. Yeah, I used cool. to use Spectacle as well. Then I found Rectangle, which I think it has just a few more tweaks that you're able to do to it to make it work for you. So that's what I use now. And it's one of those where I'm so reliant on it, I just don't even think about it anymore. Yeah, and- I, I tried something called Divi that was is kind of similar, but... I just couldn't get into it. Spectacle is just kind of my default. One additional thing I will say is take the time and clean up your desk. If you have a messy desk where things are just scattered all over it, it affects your state of mind and it will affect the... I I would go as far to say it will affect the quality of code that you're able to do. Jeez, Dave, I'm right here. You can say my name. (laughs) 
that's an interesting point. I would like to add on to that real quick and just say that I was talking to a developer one time and they were kind of saying that I was like, well, I have crazy ADHD and nothing I have is ever clean. And, but I know where everything is and yada, yada. And he was like, well, then for you, clean for us is different from you because you kind of live in this sort of chaotic state. And I think that's okay if it works for you. I don't think like my mess may be considered quote unquote messy to some people, but for me, it works perfectly. So I think having a clean desk, it's not a universal definition, I think for everyone. Just clean up your desk, Andrew. No. (laughs) I mean, do you really need two cans of Play-Doh on your desk? Is it enough? (laughs) No, I'm using both right now. Um, This is quickly becoming a pile-on fest. I'm ending this quickly. (laughs) Or before you guys find out what my room looks like. You know, one thing I had been thinking about doing, and it just hasn't come to fruition yet, is to put my monitors on a slider up against the wall. So I can easily raise them and lower them, and then have a pull-out, flip-up desk. So I'm able to get right up against the wall and not actually be bound to a desk. So I'm not using my monitors or anything like that. Or when I'm not using my computer, but I'm just in the office, I can literally just lower the desk or lower this wall-attached panel, You know, kind of like the flip beds. So everything is just flush up against the wall. Well, hopefully those listening will find something valuable. And I guess you can reach out to all of us on Twitter if you have any questions or want to ask any specific questions about our setups. And the show notes, once again, can be found at therubyblend.com slash 21. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me. And I hope you both have an awesome day, an awesome week. And I will catch you next week. All right. Have a good one. All right. Talk to you later. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.